Chapter one, take two, two. My family was so wonderful, but they were strangers these days. No matter how much older and more accomplished I became, the feeling of inferiority and being an outsider never left. My brothers were both doing remarkable things. Jordan had been accepted into the residency program at Harvard. He married the love of his life and planned to start a family. Jeremy wasted no time after retiring from his illustrious sports career. He immediately launched a tech company and was honored as one of the 30 under 30 in tech by Forbes. Not only was Jeremy's philanthropy undeniably touching, he received a sizable investment to fund his work and was garnering a lot of good press. I tried to put my feelings of inadequacy aside and simply enjoy and appreciate my family. It was not easy. At dinner, I stared at my plate listening to my brothers talk about their lives. Poker was the one thing I was really, really good at. I had built this multi-million dollar enterprise from scratch, but I still didn't feel like I had a place at the table. I ate quietly, refilling my wine glass too many times. I had nothing worthy to add to the conversation. My family knew about the game. They tried to ignore it, treating it like it was a phase I was going through. A point came when I could no longer control the frustration I felt at being as I saw it undervalued. I wanted to rebel. I started talking about the money, the celebrity and billionaire friends, the private jets, the full-time driver, the staff, the clubs. Just because my family members didn't find these things impressive didn't mean the rest of the world didn't dream about the life I was describing. I knew I sounded obnoxious. I could see their eyes judging me, disapproving. Is this really the life you want? asked Jordan. Yeah, it is. I don't judge your perfect little rule-following, earnest, boring lives. I was getting angrier, louder, and definitely too drunk. I don't give a fuck what you think about my career. You have no idea what I have built, the obstacles I have overcome, so save your self-righteous comments and disapproving looks. I ran upstairs to my old room, slammed my door, and cried into my pillow. Hey everyone, welcome to Chapter 1, Take 2, the podcast where we read the book, watch the film, and discuss the adaptation. My name is Maddie. And I'm Brianna. And this week we are covering Molly's Game, the story of Molly Bloom, who goes from small town Colorado girl to uh, big time poker game running elite woman person with lots of money and contacts. I'm Molly Bloom. Do you know about me? I read your indictment after I got your call last night and I bought your book. Do you understand that you are charged with operating an illegal gambling business? Are you taking me on as a client? I don't think I can convince my partners to take a flyer on the poker princess. If you think a princess can do what I did, you're incorrect. I'm getting that you don't think much of me, but what if every single one of your ill-informed, unsophisticated opinions about me were wrong? I'd be amazed. We are into our second season now of Chapter 1, Take 2. Uh, thank you for coming back if you are from our season one and if you have never heard from us before uh, it's awesome to have you with us this season we are focusing on female-led literature and film i'm pretty excited about it what do you think brie um i mean it's my idea so i'm pretty excited about it what do you think um, <laughs> it's a good idea what do you, what do you think defines a female-led story I would definitely say... Other, apart from the female-led part. Yeah, apart from the fact that she's the protagonist. Yeah. Um, I would say that she is definitely the one who is dictating the... I guess she's dictating where the story is going. Um, she's not asking for... It's not asking for help, but it's her choices are the choices that are changing the outcomes that ultimately lead to whatever happens. It's not something that is happening to her mm. is a really important thing for me because I think there are a lot of female protagonists. Well, to be honest, I don't, what's 100% the definition of a protagonist? Do they have to be the one calling the shots or can they still be the lead protagonist and have things happen to them? I think that a protagonist is just the central... It's the central character of a story in which 
the in, in such a way that the story is told that the reader is meant to empathize with their narrative. Right. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they're the ones calling the shots. It's just the perspective the story is being told from. Uh, yeah, for sure. Because, I mean, I would say... It's not, it's not even... Because, you know, if you're reading a book, you can have um, an omniscient narrator who knows the thoughts of all the characters, yep. but there might still be a central character whose thoughts you delve into more deeply than other characters' thoughts. Yes, definitely. Okay. Yeah, so for me, a strong... Uh, lead female film is one where she is calling the shots like I um, really like Lyra from the Northern Lights because things happen because of the choices that she makes rather than her being pushed along by external events and when we covered The Wizard of Oz in our previous season, it was the final episode of season one, um, we talked a bit about how Dorothy in the movie a lot of the time was just upset and was being helped by other characters rather than her helping herself. But that wasn't in the book. Yes. Right. But I'm just saying from the film. I think that a strong female character can be one who, uh, at least initially, is powerless. I would even say that Molly's character is occasionally a bit powerless, but she doesn't stop fighting, and she never submits to the power or the authority around her. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, we could still argue that... Ultimately, her actions are one of those where she was a daughter who felt like she was never good enough in the eyes of her father. And that's why she constantly was seeking the um, approval and need of power that was given to her by running these poker games and being in control of powerful men, which was discussed quite a bit in the film. I think one of the elements that I think is central to a strong female character is that when faced with misogyny or stereotypical sexist ideals for women they don't submit to them and the film and the narrative or the book don't choose to idealize that like if they do represent women in that way it's always with a criticism Mm. of that ideal or um they don't endorse it yeah the story can't endorse women being submissive or bad misogynistic things happening to women and it being okay. They, if that narrative is created, I think that takes away from how strong the character is. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Like you said before, um, it was your idea to do a female-led season. Why was that so important to you? Uh, I think that this is... I was going to say this is the time for it, but I think that it's always <laughs> been the time for female stories. But I think that... Mm. Um, A lot of my favorite books growing up had men at the forefront of Mm. them. And I think it's important to talk about female stories. And I think it's important to unpack the ideas around a strong female character. In in, in that a female character can be flawed and should be flawed because women are are flawed. Mm. Um, And that they don't have to be perfect and they don't necessarily have to be strong in in a physical sense. Uh, or even in an emotional sense, they can be quite weak and still be strong. They can be quite vulnerable and still be strong because vulnerability is strength, yeah. I think. Um, well, unpacking it, like you said, is a really good way of putting that because absolutely, like even uh, Jessica Chastain, who plays Molly Bloom in the film, talks about in a, a few of her interviews how, you know, women are when they're portrayed as the lead, they're representing all women, whereas men don't have that pressure because mm. a lot of the, like the majority of the time, the stories are told from the men's perspective. So if there's a male character who's flawed or you don't like, it's just that character. Whereas if there's a woman lead that you don't like, it's representing all women. And, and that, yeah, that's absolutely true for all minorities. Yeah, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. We talked a lot about how uh, both Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel, um, like not on the podcast, but in life, um, were representing all female superhero films. And if they weren't good, uh, because there were so few of them to compare them to, basically Hollywood might say, oh, well, the problem is female superheroes. And not the problem is that particular film. 100%, 100%. And that's still the case, even in a world where we live with Ryan Reynolds' um, Green Lantern film. And, you know, it's just really odd that... Like, he's a great actor. I love him in all, all kinds of things. But that film was just like, oh, disregarded as like a bit of a flop. Like, it wasn't Ryan Reynolds' It was, and it wasn't superhero films. Yeah, it was just, you know, that, that film. film. Exactly, yeah. it wasn't the good uh, But women don't necessarily have that luxury. No, you know, we, I think we they have a crush don't. Yeah, they do. And a lot of the time they do. I think there's um, 
quite a lot of philosophy around that. And I, you know, there's all kinds of classic quotes like women have to do the same job as men um, twice as well to get half the amount of recognition. Yeah, and I think we see that in Molly's story. Um, she wasn't yeah. the first person to run a game, but in order to keep her game, she had to be better and in a lot of ways had to take more risks yeah. than anyone else. Yeah, and she had to take more disrespect from people and she had to be smarter. Like, she she had always to plan one step ahead. Because yeah. if she dropped the ball, there were, if, there were so many men ready to just cut her out of it. There was a part of the book that I had considered reading as the excerpt mm. um, in which she's trying to get money from someone who's stiffing her and they basically say, I'm, I'm contesting this law, so I'm not going to pay it. Yeah. And she thinks about it, and she does this several times throughout her story, and which is, it's real life, yeah. um, where she has to be really careful because she's dealing with men and powerful men and powerful egotistical men mm. uh, on how she goes about trying to collect from them so she doesn't confront him directly and say... There's no contesting it. You you won you me the money. You lost. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Um, but what she does is she lets him take her out for dinner. Yeah. And then she um, pulls off to the side later when they go out to the clubs and, and looks stressful and sad and, and says, and he comes over and he says, why aren't you dancing and having fun? She's like, you know, I'm just a little bit stressed. Mm. Um, I've got a lot of money. Yeah. I take care of these women who work for me. Exactly. It's my business. And he's like, you know. I want to be there to take care of you. I'll, I'll pay you, pay you what I Yeah, need. yeah. And it's, that is absolutely what women have had to do basically throughout all of time. Just, just coddle she, male yeah, ego. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, I'm not just going to ask you for what you owe me. I'm going to make you feel like you're giving me what I rightly deserve as you being the bigger man. You're, yeah. you're the hero. You're the by, hero. Yeah, you're right? You're saving me. Uh, 100%, oh, 100%. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you're right. Um, like you said earlier, uh, it has, you know, it's all. There's always been the time for women's stories, but definitely at the moment, um, there's been movements. I'd say probably in the last five years, um, especially starting from the Me Too movement, and now we're coming to and the Times Up movement. Yeah, and now we're coming into Black Lives Matter. Like, ideally, we'll eventually get to a world where everyone can actually just be left alone and live their lives without fear of constant having to justify their existence kind of thing. But we're not there yet, so conversations like this are still important. Well, um, I mean, I think, should we jump into the film and really just start, let's talk about it. The film? Yeah. And the book. book? And the book, yeah, definitely. Um, It is very recent, so Molly Bloom, um, you know, we watched quite a few interviews of her before recording the podcast, you know, there's lots of available because how public and notable the her journey was. Um, the book was written in 2014. Sorry, that was when it was published. The book was published in 2014 by Harper Collins, and I just mentioned that because it's I'm I'm not sure what deal uh, Molly Bloom did get, but she intentionally went with a publishing company to not have to disclose every name of all the celebrities that she worked with. Um, And then the film was made three years later in 2017 um, with the first screening in 2018. Um, And Molly Bloom was the one to push that because she was in a lot of debt and she needed to figure out the best way to make some money legally to pay back, um, you know, what was um, the fine given to her and her conviction and to the government, even though, you know, the government offered her a deal where she could name everyone and get her five million dollars back but she didn't want to take it i don't know it was actually a smaller sum than that the movie did um exaggerate exaggerate that for well you know as As they they do do. (laughs) (laughs) um but i think it's really interesting that she did make that choice um because i mean obviously i don't know i'm not her and i'm not in that case but i agree with what um Idris Elba's character was saying in the film where it's like, where are these people who you were protecting? Like, they're not your friends. You are alone out here in the storm. And she's like, it doesn't matter. Like, it's about my integrity. And I'm like, I don't agree with that. Like, I would just sell them out. Because honestly, the reason that she got into so much trouble was because she kept getting dicked around by them. I understand... I understand. Maybe. I mean, and, and, and I think we're always going to be on the opposite sides of this this argument. But mm. I understand the choices that she made. Um, there's yes. a part in the in the book where she uh, she says that she's frustrated and tired 
because she feels like someone's always trying to steal her game mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Uh, manipulate her. And the only way that she could really ever sustain being on top is if she sunk to their level uh, in the way that they dealt with things. Like, you know, got someone to... Yeah, some muscle to collect the money. Um, yeah. And she does a little bit. She does end up taking a rake to help protect herself. Yeah. Which but it's was... only because people were stiffing her in the first place. Absolutely. Like, at no point would she have had to actually cross the line and break the law if people who were coming to games were paying their debts. Like, she wanted to do it legally the whole time. And there's no point where she uses aggression or anything like that. She uses her smarts and her ability to network. Which is interesting because when you watch interviews of her, she isn't... Um, as, she's an el- as eloquent, yeah, I think, in the thing. I don't know if, you know, she's nervous. I'm sure she is. But I, Well, I, I, I mean, why wouldn't you be? She was completely destroyed in the media. Yes, absolutely. And I'm sure she needs to be very calculated now in what she says because of that. But also, I mean, her entire persona was a calculated persona. The way that she interacted with the men of that world had to be by playing someone who was sweet and a little bit... Easy to take advantage of, mm. but still sexy and mysterious. Yes, but you can't have me. still to be strong. Yes. You know? Um, no, definitely, definitely. Um, overall, I I think we've talked about this a little bit off the podcast. Um, if the book wasn't about famous people and such obscene large amounts of money, it wouldn't be all that interesting. Like, it is interesting in the sense that, you know, she went through this journey and she learned a lot from it, and that's great. But um, it's... I don't know. It, it's it's a is it dull? I don't think dull. I think I think one of the things was is that she she wrote the book before um, the story was told up, and I think I think they mentioned that in the book or in the movie. They mentioned in the movie uh, in a really good way. Uh, the movie is quite meta. It comments a lot on. I thought the movie was really good. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, I comments a lot on like reality because she wrote the book before the sentencing happened, yeah. and I remember feeling when I finished the book that it was a bit anticlimactic. Yeah, anticlimactic definitely. And you know, she obviously wrote it because she needed um, the income, but yeah, for a, from a storyteller's perspective, it did leave a little bit to be desired at the end. But I guess we get that satisfaction from the film. Mm. Shall I do a quick summary of it? Yes. Since we haven't done that yet. Um, so Molly Bloom was born uh, to a very smart and incredibly talented family. Mm. She grew up as... A bit as... emotionally abusive, I'm <laughs> um, She grew up uh, as a skier, discovered that she had scoliosis when she was 12 years old, had surgery, and believed her career to be over, but uh, made an incredible comeback a year later and hit the slopes again, and then eventually made the Olympic ski team. Mm. Uh, She was injured and then retired from skiing and uh, was going to go to law school, but took a year off and went to L.A., where she kind of stumbled into uh, a job playing, helping to run a poker game in which she received incredible tips. And then uh, she gets kicked out of the game by her abusive boss, who manipulates her through um, a a significant portion of the, the book. And then she steals it back from him, and she becomes the showrunner. And then she loses that game again uh, because of Tobey Maguire's uh, choices. Uh, she moves to New York to start over, starts another game, unintentionally gets involved with the Russian mafia, and then uh, is indicted. Mm-hmm. And Molly Bloom versus the U.S. government. I mean, those those are the really strong notes. There's quite a lot that happens in the book in reality. Yeah, it's written. It's over a little a bit meandering. Yeah. at times. Yeah, um, but it's written over quite a few years. Like the story is told. Yeah, um, and it is. You know, she just writes her life. She wasn't a writer. I don't know. What but saying. she had a good story. Yeah, she had a good story, and I'm happy that I read it. I definitely think that it's a good story to be in the public. And I think... Why do you think that? What do you think um, What do you think is interesting about... Interesting and important about Molly's story? I think something that I've learned as an adult is how celebrities have basically replaced um, old religious figures. Like, in Greek mythology, you know, we had Hercules, and that's who people looked up to and they prayed to and they believed them to be, like... Something to strive towards. Like, if you were good enough as a human, you would be a god. And in our current times, modern times, obviously religion is still a thing, but celebrities are also held up to a higher standard of person. 
and I think there's a really weird disconnect that the average person has. Obviously, I'm talking from our privileged middle class white perspective, and there are people who are in poverty. Um, but I guess the majority, I don't know if the majority of people are in middle class, but they strive for that level of wealth. They strive to be celebrities, like that is their ambition. And I think reading books like this and hearing about how, you know, she talks a lot in her interviews about people losing a hundred million dollars. I don't know, I, I feel like it's good to be reminded that they're just people who have either um, had a lot of luck and been born into privileged circumstances already, whether it's wealthier families so that they could go to um, great schools or to meet the right people to then become famous. Like, I'm sure, and there's, but there's also the drive, like, you know, Toby Maguire is talked about a lot and how he grew up in poverty and that gave him the drive to become wealthy and famous. But just because someone is a celebrity doesn't mean that they're a good person. It doesn't mean they should be held on a pedestal. Absolutely. And what a great analogy to relate it to Greek myths because one of the things that's really interesting about Greek myths is that even though all of them were gods, they were also uh, very human in their traits. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they were imperfect. They were imperfect, and there's lots of infidelity uh, in Greek mythology, and that just seems to be accepted. Uh, yeah, but that's why I think the book is so good, because it just rem it's just a reinforcer of, like, uh, especially with all these wealthy men that could change the world, literally. Like, if they pulled their money, or if they invested in charities, or if they did something towards the environment or starvation they could impact hundreds and thousands if not millions of people's of lives but they choose not to because what they don't have to like it's not their responsibility like they've just been lucky people i mean maybe it is your responsibility if you become that wealthy but why would someone think so like we're not we don't teach um morality or philosophy in schools unless you study it specifically at university but it's not taught to us in like high school primary school and intermediate so hmm. why when you become a millionaire billionaire you know, apart from your own uh, moral codes, there's nothing to drive you to create charities or to donate money. And so, so reading about them losing all this, for me, just really reinforces the fact that they're just people and they make bad choices and it's not something that we should all want to become. Yeah. Molly talks a lot about... <laughs> just saying that, sorry. Made me think of the irony of running a podcast and be like, oh, but still listen to my voice in a public context. <laughs> Uh -huh. um, uh, just, you know, talking about that made me think of Molly in interviews. She talks a lot about, she's asked the question, how much money have you seen on the table at any given time? And she said that she saw a guy lose a hundred million dollars in one night and, um, how she talks about how sad that made her. And I think, yeah, that makes me sad to think about how, um, how a person who has a hundred million dollars to spare spares it in a poker game mm. of all the ways that you could spend that money. Yeah. I mean, even setting up a company would do the world more good. Yeah, you know, would create jobs. Create jobs. Yeah, definitely. Fuel the economy. And I think that's really frustrating. I know that <laughs> I know that jobs are technically still created uh, because Molly's job and the jobs of all of her um, Playboy friends. Sure. But money is just changing hands between wealthy people. Exactly. Well. Yeah. yeah. So, it kind of... Sorry. What you just said prompted me to think of altered carbon. Um, because it's like, what do the wealthy and famous do if they can live forever? And like, mm. they just go to such extreme lengths to feel anything because, well, not of carbon, they've been alive for so long. But I think it's similar with people who are incredibly wealthy today. Like, they can literally have anything that they want well, that's at any why, time. Um, so many people feel like we're living in, in, in dystopian times mm. uh, in so many ways because the wealth distribution is so... Uh, skew. Yeah, it's so unequal. Yeah. And the people who are at the top, like Molly, doesn't feel happy. Yeah. yeah. You know? She's, she's successful, but she doesn't feel happy. Yeah, but she's apparently achieved the dream that we're all supposed to strive for. Hmm. I think what I find really interesting about Molly's story is the way that she navigates uh, how women are expected and encouraged to be this sexualized, innocent, naive ideal. <laughs> uh, and all the contradictions that women are uh, socialized to be. Yeah. And how she's simultaneously fighting against that stereotype while also striving to fulfill it and seeking validation in fulfilling it. Yeah. And I think that, that that's one of the aspects of her story that really struck home with me because I am a feminist, but I still feel... You know, I, I work in hospitality and men hit on me all the time. And there's always that thing where it's like, oh, it's, it's, it's still nice 
to receive that type of validation at the same time I feel very uncomfortable being hit on by men who are so much older than me and and I don't like having having to put up with it as Mm. part of my job yeah um but there's that that disconnect. I don't feel it as much now as I did when I first started in hospitality when I was um, 15 years old. But it's there, and I think a lot of women feel that way, and it's a very complicated thing. Uh, and it's a really difficult aspect of, f- like, femininity that's hard, and, and, and femaleness that is hard to escape. Yeah. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. I always feel that when I watch films like Molly's Game... Uh, or read books about it. I, you know, these women, even though they are being so accommodating, it's always at a at a level that's calculated. Mm. Whereas for me, I, I sometimes wish I was less passive, definitely, because I think most women or all women are raised to be people pleasers, and some women really lean into that and figure out a way to use it to their benefit so that they can move up in the world and I think that that's great because that's the power that they have and so they should use it but for me I don't know the older I've gotten the more outspoken I've definitely become which I'm grateful for but I think it's had to be something I've had to unlearn so much of my taught childhood habits and then relearn like who actually am I as an adult and is this the person that I'd be proud to be Mm -hmm. like I think about sometimes if I had a daughter how would she, how would I want her to see me react in the situation? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I find that if I'm fighting for others, that's always easier for me to do than fighting for myself. Mm. And so I tell myself, how would, if, if this was well, you, like my wife or my friend or any, any woman that I knew, if, if she was being treated this way, like how would I feel about it and what would I do about it? And then I try to do that for myself. Mm. Uh... So, um, shall we, <laughs> uh, just to, you know, stay on track, I, I, I love the philosophical discussions mm. about this. I, I, think, I, I feel like this is going to happen a lot. Yeah, well, I season. feel like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, and, that's, and that's kind of the great. point, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, how would you rate the film, uh, as an adaptation of the book? I've thought a lot about that. It's complicated in this particular case because it's based on a true story and the story was still evolving as the film was being made. Yeah, but I also was thinking a lot about how... We appreciate films that even if they change quite a lot of, like, events or something in the book, as long as they capture the heart and the point of it, we don't mind so much. Mm. And I was thinking about, you know, because the the film is different because it's set a lot after the book finishes. And so as an adaptation, it's quite different. Mm. But I really appreciated the way that it approached things. And I still feel like it had the heart of it. And that's what I liked. So I feel like as an adaptation, it's still quite high, like a seven and a half. Hmm. I'm going to give it a five. Okay. Uh, but I, I hear what you're saying, because there is a lot of it that I think that Aaron Sorkin, who directed and uh, wrote the screenplay for this film, and what a great choice, by the way. Oh, definitely. I think, honestly, yeah. uh, in a lot of ways. Jessica, um, sorry to interrupt you, Jessica Chastain specifically wanted to work with Aaron as a director. And I just looked... Uh, him up because I have seen quite a few of his things and I didn't really realize how much I enjoyed his style. Um, but on Wikipedia, it discusses it as Sorkin's trademark rapid fire dialogue and extended monologues are complemented in television by frequent collaborators. Collaborator Thomas uh, Schlem's characteristic directing technique called the walk and talk. These sequences consist of a single tracking shot of long duration involving multiple characters engaging in conversation as they move through the set. Characters exit and enter the conversation as the shot continues without any cuts. And I really like shots like that. I do too. I don't think we saw a ton of those in this film. No, the only one that comes to mind is when Molly is first meeting um, her lawyer, played by Idris. Alba. <laughs> I got confused between which was his first and which was his last name. Um, and she does, what? she does a bit, yeah, no. <laughs> she does a bit of a monologue at the beginning about like he asks her, "Have you slept?" And she goes on like, "This is where I was on this day. This is where I oh, was on this day." Oh, I think the rapid fire dialogue is present, but the movement of the scene is a little bit less. Sure, but yeah. yeah. Um, Sorry, what you were saying? I felt like I wanted to read that. Oh no, no, that's great. Um, I think. Yeah, I do think that Aaron Sorkin was a great choice. Um, in some of the readings about this film, it's because uh, Idris Elba's character doesn't really exist in real life. Yeah, um, he's on the but way. Aaron Sorkin has said that 
Idris Elba is sort of him and his journey with Molly is sort of his journey with Molly in accepting um, the the opportunity to make the book into a film Mm. and that he needed to know you know, the whole thing. He needed to know if she was a good person, oh, I guess. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I like that. Um, before he took on That's the film. That's real meta. And whether or not he wanted this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, my issue with his interpretation is yes. how much he relied on the father-daughter aspect of it. Yes, yes. And I did. I didn't like that. I, I mean, it's not not present in the book because it definitely is. Mm. She has a serious drive to prove herself. But it's not just fueled by her father. It's also fueled by the existence of her brothers and, 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 and her injury. Yeah. Which she talks about the isolation that she felt being cut off from a significant part of her family for an entire year yeah. while they continue to ski yeah, and she was away. left at home. Yeah, and, 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 and there are a lot of things to unpack there. Like her dad was obviously... Um, quite a significant part of how she felt. Now, I haven't found anything that uh, Molly Bloom says that her father did cheat on her husband. Or her father did cheat on (laughs) him. Not everyone is gay. My love. Um, But she does say in a couple things that, in a couple of interviews, that he didn't change a lot from reality and she revealed more to him than she did in the book. Yeah. uh, Like her addiction to drugs and stuff. Yeah, her parents are divorced, I think, at the end of the book. She definitely talks about her mother... Living in Colorado, not and her father isn't mentioned anymore. Yeah, I think it's very possible that that did happen, and if it did happen, that that would manifest itself in her if she knew about it, and how she re- like related to men and and wanted to protect her mom and stuff like that. I think that's an important element there. Um, so I didn't like that, and I also, I know this is probably going to be controversial. I loved and hated Idris Elba's monologue. In the in the deposition, oh, yeah. uh, I was just like, yeah. I'm sorry, Molly Bloom has done so many incredible things. She stuck up for herself. She's dragged herself out of the darkness. She entered into a 12 step program. She faced a lot of demons, a lot mm. of her own guilt, a lot of her own self loathing to become a better person. Yeah. She stands there in the courtroom and puts her entire life on the line. Yeah. Loses her entire fortune, everything she's ever worked for, everything that ever gave her a sense of validation. She does that. On her own, and she doesn't really need Aaron Sorkin as Idris Elba riding in to tell the world her story. She told it herself. Yeah. She um, nobody would give her a meeting with Aaron Sorkin. She had to fight for that. She fought every step of the way. Yeah, and for yeah. him to use this as like, I'm going to come and save Molly's <laughs> reputation. I'm, I'm going to tell the story. It is, it is a little bit yeah arrogant. Definitely. And uh, he misses the point of the feminism of the story. Yes. To that. I agree with you, but what I would like to ask you is, do you think that that is needed, though, because in reality, throughout all of time, the persecuted party often needs the party in power to validate and stand up for what the persecuted party is saying? Like, like Idris Elba, his character is like, I'm reinforcing to what she has already been saying about how she is a good person, and I'm being like, yeah, she is, like, I am on her side, and you should be too. I definitely, yes, I agree the story needed it. I agree that she needed that as well, and that's unfortunate. Yes, yes, exactly. It would be ideal if we lived in a world where we believed women for what they said. But I do think that the film comes off a little self-aggrandizing in that way, like, especially since, and we'll talk about this because it's not in the book, and I don't think it was in her real life, um, the um, comparison and metaphor of connecting back to the Crucible um, oh, yeah, yeah, that was definitely just for the film. Yeah, because The Crucible was written about the past and was a criticism of Hollywood, yeah. as well as the Salem Witch Trials themselves. And it's a great play, uh, and I have a personal connection to it because I played Elizabeth Proctor in The Crucible in university. Mm. So I'm a big fan. Big fan. <laughs> uh, it's one of the plays that made me want to study literature. It's incredible. There's a lot of symbolism in it. But, you know, it's Aaron Sorkin has basically said to Hollywood, this is my The Crucible yeah. with Molly's game. Yeah. Uh, even so much that she quotes the most famous line. Yes. And when she says, because it's my name and I'll never have another in my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, to me, who's never read The Crucible, I'm like, 
I knew she was going to say that line because she was being so specifically, I can't taint my name, my reputation. Mm. And I was like, a name, is, a name is just a name. It's the exact... A rose by any other name would smell as sweet as Shakespeare would say. Um, but it's the same question, basically, in the in the play, um, the main character, mm. Joseph Proctor? Couldn't tell you. We're going to call him Mr. Proctor. Oh, Mr. Proctor. I'm just losing his name. Anyway, oh, he has to, he, he, he's basically been accused of witchcraft by um, his adulterous ex-lover, mm. um, Abigail Williams, and he has to, like, sign away and say that he saw other members of his community sign their name in the devil's book in order to be able to be exempt from the death penalty and live out his life with his pregnant wife. And oh. he says he's going to do it because he finds out his wife is pregnant and he wants to be there to raise his children. Yeah. And then he decides not to at the last moment because um, it's his name that he's signing. He's lying. He's committing perjury to protect himself and he doesn't feel like he can do that. So does he die? He does die. Yeah. To me, I would just sign my name. Like, I understand the value of, you know, people think their name is who they are. But I was actually having a conversation with a friend about how she doesn't care what her name is. Like, it's a sound that she responds to when someone calls it. And I feel like, I don't know if it's because... Uh... I, have, I have a name for you. Yeah. Monica Lewinsky. I mean, think about that name. Think about how it's become... But I only know that a because... A caricature but in I, itself. Yeah, but I only know that because you're American as my wife. Like, before we even talked about... But it, she lives in America. I know, but I... And people who deal with that kind just, of... But if she left America, I don't think people would give a shit. I think that enough people would. Like, I mean, to be... But I like to be perfectly honest, before you met me, you weren't um, all that interested in a lot of world politics, but <laughs> there are a lot of people who are and who yeah. would recognize the name Monica Lewinsky. And also, you're a generation behind that. But for. So are you! With the same yeah, I know, I know. But, but what you're I'm, American. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, is that people in her age bracket right. in other countries sure. will know her name because it was a significant event in the same way that you and I will, um, will know big Molly Bloom's name. You know? Yeah. Or, or or a lot of other kind of those sort of celebrities. Yeah. No, no, no. That's fair. But I mean, I would say to that that we only know Molly Bloom's name because we went looking. Sure, 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 sure. But <laughs> I, get, I get your point. I get your point. Definitely. Yeah. Um, just speaking of the film, because I haven't said my fun facts for this episode. Uh, yeah, like I said, the book's written in 2014, film in 2017, um, rated 7.4 on IMDb. What do you think it has on Rotten Tomatoes? It was high. Seven, like 80%. So. Oh, very good. 82% on Rotten Tomatoes, which I think is very good. Um, the budget was $30 million and box office $59 million. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it did well. Uh, we've talked a lot about um, Aaron Sorkin as the director. Uh, Jessica Chastain is playing Molly. I didn't know how much of a fan of hers I was until watching some interviews and hearing about, you know, her beliefs and her feminism and woman empowerment mm. and i'm like i checked her out on her twitter page and she was sharing all the current stuff about black lives matter and i was like oh i'm a fan of jessica chastain now speaking of black <laughs> lives matter i think this film is quite timely because um it's it's very glossed over in the book and the movie but i'd like to draw attention to the significant force and aggression with which the fbi greeted her when they were arresting her mm with automated weapons mm. to to an, to arrest one woman one woman one un, one uh, one unarmed presumably woman. unarmed yeah but woman. she's never had any in previous in the middle of the night yeah. without any previous convictions yeah um who for all intents and purposes we can presume that the FBI could only get like a lot of what they seem to have on her was circumstantial at best hmm. in terms of her being related to the, the Russian mafia. Mm. It's very clear that she was just running a poker game. Yes. And involved with, unfortunately, some not so upsetting people. Yeah, and people are so willing to believe mass media and what they were talking about. Like, that, she wasn't... Oh, was it confirmed if she was the self-proclaimed uh, princess of poker? Or was it a name she was just given... Didn't. It, well, in the in the movie, it seemed to be that she wasn't the self-proclaimed, that she never gave herself that title. Yeah. Um, but we're all, I don't know, just willing to buy in the worst of people. Like, we, you and I were talking about Megan Fox and how 
I heard some rumours why she wasn't in the third Transformers film was because she was difficult to work with, but it turned out that she actually was just sick of being overly sexualised um, by the director and was actually quite religious and made to feel very uncomfortable. And so instead of them adapting to her wishes of how, you know, as an actress she wanted to be treated, they just fired her and then gave her a bad reputation, which I think um, hindered her from working for quite a lot of time. And, you know, but, mm. but I was willing to believe. I was like, oh, yeah, she's this hot woman. Like, she obviously must be a bitch. But, you know, it's just because we're so willing to believe poorly of women. Yeah, it's interesting because we, we just watched her New Girl and I think it's interesting that, like, in both Transformers and New Girl, she dates someone who is punching up. In dating her. Hardcore. Hardcore. Like, yeah. like massively punching yeah. up. Yeah. And I think that's quite an interesting thing considering um, she's so, like, everyone has said, you know, she's, you know, really full of herself and quite sexual. But, like, if she was, then she wouldn't want to play those roles. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think she's probably really lovely. Like, she's a mother of four, I believe, now. Um, and she's still with her husband. They were going to get divorced when she found out. Hmm. Uh, I delved in quite deep into my research because I wanted to find out about it. Um, but they said together when she found out she was pregnant with her fourth child. But anyway. Yeah, but yeah, my point is is that they used way too much force and it's it, it just... It, it is really relevant at the moment. It is really relevant at the moment but it's 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 been relevant for years. The yes, militarization of the police in America is yeah. incredible and I don't think it's necessary and I think, you know... I read a great article the other day about how we need to demilitarize the police, but also how we need to rethink their position in society. Yeah. Um, because if you pull out a gun, it's going to escalate a situation. End of story. That is an escalating measure. It is aggressive, and it is a, a moment of attack. Even if you don't fire it, it is. It's going on the offense. Whereas police should really be sent to situations to de-escalate them. And I feel like if police did not go into situations expect, expecting to have to defend themselves, they probably would be able to de-escalate moments of violence yeah. more often. Absolutely. Um, you know, I was saying today that when uh, I read this book, well, last year, about an FBI negotiator... Mm, um Never split the difference. Never split the difference. Yeah. And he talks a lot about how um, how much negotiation tactics have changed, but how more often than not you need to find if you if you understand the person you're trying to negotiate with, you're able to de-escalate the situation. Yeah, find and it's around. a lot of it's a lot of talking, really. And yeah. not a lot of weapons and not showing force and not being aggressive. Well, in my life, I personally have never found that meeting aggression with aggression has ever de-escalated aggression. Absolutely. I don't understand why anyone would think that would work. Yeah, so I think that, um, yeah, I was automated weapons for one person seems absurd. And Absolutely. It is we, absurd. If we can't take a step back and see that, and that's what I really like about Molly, is that she took a step back from her life and saw that she was the problem. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think <sighs> it's a shame that the Black Lives Matter movement is happening in force so much now when there's a pandemic and people will get sick because of it, but... It was always going to go to this place. There was, like, nothing has changed previously from different rules going into the police and trying to give them, like, sensitive training and that kind of thing. Like, you know, people of um, African-American descent have been being murdered by the police forever. Hmm. And nothing, no, nothing substantial has changed. Well, it seems like with places like America, well, it's, it seems like with all revolutions, things have to get really bad before people realize yeah. A lot of change needs to happen. Yeah, and now they're making a lot of noise and a lot of people are seeing them and it's really good. Um, Jessica Chastain actually posted three days ago, hashtag eight can't wait, which is about together these eight policies to, can decrease police violence by 72%. Um, visit eightcantwait.org, which has a lot of steps about, um, yeah, defunding the police. Like the amount of budget um, for taxes in America, especially that is spent on force and like war and Defense. weapons defepins <laughs> I know we shouldn't be laughing about this but jeez I'm sorry no no no, no. Uh, yeah. but yeah defense and weapons uh, is crazy and you know but even in uh, New Zealand at the moment um, it's currently being trialed that the police here should um, be carrying weapons and I don't know I, I mean obviously my circles that I run in are very you know progressive and can be classified as quite left wing but no one wants 
the police in New Zealand to carry guns. It's no. something that I've always been proud of is that the maximum thing that they hold is tasers and they have weapons in their cars if they need them that are under lock and key. I, I I really hope it doesn't go through. I'll be quite disappointed. But even without guns, people of color in New Zealand are already already face a significantly different uh, experience with the in, police. With the police, yeah, absolutely, uh, than absolutely. white people do. Yeah. So. <laughs> Adding guns is not going to help that situation. No, not at all. Um, the native people of any country are always much more heavily persecuted by the police. And, you know, <sighs> weapons, I don't know. I'm just so anti-force. I'm such a pacifist. I really <laughs> am. Um, sorry, the last of the cast list. We This has been a really good um, philosophical discussions for this podcast, which we we'll get, we keep coming back to the topic, but I think it's it's really good to have these talks. Um, Idris Elba, as we've said, plays um, Charlie Jaffa, who is uh, the lawyer, but not from a character in the book, but that's fine. I think he adds, you know, a good element, and it's really nice to have a person of colour in the film. Uh, Michael Cera plays Tobey Maguire's character. I'm not gonna, well, I'm not going to call him, what's his name, character X? Player X. Player but X. He, he doesn't just play... Um, Toby Maguire's. He plays an amalgamation of different people yeah. who were aggressors in games. Yeah. Because um, Toby Maguire wasn't the front person to take the game away from Molly in LA. It was somebody else. But no, he, it, but he orchestrated it. He did orchestrate it, but Molly doesn't find that out until later. So. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, Kevin Costner plays Larry Bloom. Like we said, I, we, I agree with you that he had too big a part in the film but you know that's obviously where Aaron it's all about framing I think you know (laughs) um and I like that Joey Keery um played Cole who is Steve Harrington from Stranger Things and it was fun I don't know to to see him he has the best hair oh he does he's just such a beautiful man thing um yeah so I mean I think uh, there were quite a few differences like the fact the court case is even really in the the movie um uh, there were, it was obviously a lot was cut out. Her relationships were cut out, which I actually really appreciated. Oh, yes. I was actually going to ask you, what do you think of none of her romantic relationships from the book making it into the movie? They weren't central to the story. They yeah. were color. They were they sh- demonstrated that She's still Molly... She's a person. Well, yeah, that she was still a person, but that she was becoming more and more removed from the things she initially found yeah. important. One yeah. of the things that I did miss was that she initially starts out volunteering at a, a children's hospital. Yes. And, yes, that was um, Oh, his name is Dean in the movie, but it's Reardon in the book, I think, her boss. Yeah, Reardon, yeah. Um, and he makes her quit that. Yeah. Uh, because it, he, he doesn't like germs. Yeah. He, and, he thinks poor people volunteer. Yeah. And, and, and something they also cut out in regards to Reardon is that um, Molly does plan like a, a coup kind of when she is um, fired, where she plans to take the game away from him. But then later on, Reardon calls her and she comes over and he tells her, he's like, you have my blessing. Like you've finally, you know, shown me that you're willing to do what it takes to be successful in this world. And so he give, he he blessed her taking of the game. And that's something that they didn't yeah. cover at all. But I thought that was really Really cool. interesting. Yeah, yeah. because I can he, understand why they cut out a lot because... Like we said, this story wasn't as satisfying without the ending. And yeah. I thought the pacing of the film was great. Yeah. The, I really liked it. Um, so I really enjoyed that. I also really enjoyed um, the flashbacks to uh, the videos that her dad took of her as a child on her birthday because that really happened. Mm. And Aaron Sorkin watched all of them. And I, I wish I could watch all of them. I'm sure I she's never going to. very interesting. Right, so interesting. Yeah. I feel um, like we should do that. Not, as, not in as weird a way because I don't agree with um, Larry Bloom's parenting style, but I, I think... Having something as just like a, a time capsule of you growing up. Like, I would love to watch myself mm. being like, I don't know, talking every year on my birthday about something funny. Because I don't know, maybe I'm just a bit self-obsessed. I think I'd like to see you too. I think that'd be really interesting. <laughs> I think that uh, before we move into um, reviewing the film as a film, mm. I'd like to chat a little bit, uh, another philosophical discussion. Because one of the other themes that I think is really important to the story is your relationship with parents. Because I think mm. it's... Having a relationship with your parent is, is really, okay. it is complicated. <laughs> there is obvious, there are obvious examples of Molly's uh, dad manipulating her and being a li- like a little uh, abusive in the way that he he deals with her and her brothers, mm. um, and that's bad but he's also very loving and I think that's clear because they still have a relationship. He yeah. was pleasant in some. 
pleasant. He was pleasant, but he was also present in some of the interviews about the film. And they seem to have a relationship now. And I think what I wrote down is Molly's game seems to highlight how complicated relationships how complicated relationships with parents are in that a parent can can love their children immeasurably and yet still unintentionally hurt them. Yes. And I think uh, that's a really complicated thing that every adult has to navigate. Well, most adults have to navigate. Yeah. Um, how do you deal with the ways that your parents' insecurities or issues manifest themselves in yourself, um, but also recognize that your parents are human and that they loved you and they tried it's really complicated. What do you think about that? What do you think about the way that that was portrayed in both the book and the film? It's very relevant to my life at the moment, but I definitely think it's something that is really complicated. A comedian made a joke that he thanked his parents for giving him enough trauma to be a comedian, but not enough to kill himself. Um, Dark. Yeah, but kind of funny. But I mean, that's not how I personally feel. I, you know, I don't Mm. feel that I lived through um, particularly bad amount of trauma. I think... Most childhoods have uh, a certain level of trauma in them. It's just what level. Um, Because whether or not your parents mean to, you pick up on the subtlest of cues and um, unconscious behaviours, you know, irrational fears, all those kinds of things. Something that I personally have learned as an adult that I thought was a really good phrase was that sometimes your parents can't give you They're not capable of giving you what you need from them, so you have to give it to yourself. You have to say, I'm not going to carry this anymore. I'm going to say that I'm enough. Like, Molly Bloom probably could have avoided a lot of her... (sighs) A lot of the trouble that she went through in her life if she just said, I don't need my dad's approval. I'm enough. What was your original question, sorry? I was just, you know, (laughs) I I think it's good to talk about it. um, Do you think... That Molly's dad was wrong to push Molly? And do you think that Molly feels like her dad was wrong to push her? Personally, yes. I think he was wrong to... But it's not wrong to push your children. It's wrong to push them as hard as he did. Hmm. And I, I think she has every right to be mad about it. Because when I think about how I hope to parent one day, I want my children to know unconditionally that they are loved and they have a safe home with us, with me, with you. But also... I don't want them to just be lazy and be like, I don't have to try hard. I don't have to have goals because, you know, my parents would just take care of me. So it's fucking, it's hard. Like we don't, and we don't, I don't know. There's no course that you get made to take to become a parent. You, Mm. especially if you're a heterosexual couple, people get accidentally pregnant all the time. In that, in that same vein, because in the film, um, they kind of compare the way that Molly's dad treats her with the way that, Charles Jaffe, Idris Elba's character, treats his daughter. Mm. Um, and uh, by the end of the film, Molly seems Molly's character in the film mm. seems to endorse his treatment of her. Um, I think that's quite interesting. Mm, it is interesting. I don't know if Molly Bloom herself would do that or not. Yes, it's hard to say. Um, it, it is hard to say. But I think it's particularly interesting because Charles Jaffe's character in the film isn't white. Mm. And the it's relevant. and the way that we talked about how women have to prove themselves mm. so much more, I think black Americans still have to prove themselves, even you know, more. Well, yeah. even more because they're always facing that criticism. Are they a diversity pick? Are they here because they deserve to be here? Are they here because yeah. affirmative action programs? Yeah, definitely. Like we are both. And, and because of that, they are almost always not only deserve to be there, they deserve to be there more than anyone else by a long shot. Yes. Definitely. Well, I mean, you and I are both women and we're both gay women, so we definitely have a level of persecution in society that we will live with, but, you know, to be... It's not comparable because we can hide that. Yeah, we can... We can. I can hide uh, the you... fact that I'm gay. I can choose to yeah, release information. Yeah, you can't hide the fact that you're a woman. I mean, you, can, I, no. yeah, you kind of could. But yeah, to be a woman um, of colour who's also gay um, is something, the hardships, I will never know. We will never know. Yeah. Um, definitely, and you know that's probably a really good. That's a relevant point that in the movie um, that he's a person of color and his daughter is a uh, a girl of color because yeah they will have to work so much harder to gain the kind of respect and to prove that they should be in a room. And do you think it's like what you were saying at the beginning, where or, or earlier on in the conversation, where his pushing of it? Do you think that Idris Elba's character's pushing of his daughter is necessary in the same way that? Uh, Idris Elba's monologue on behalf of Molly Bloom's character is necessary in, in in helping her vindicate herself and prove her innocence because she 
is going more is going to be expected of her as a black woman than as a than would be expected of a white woman mm-hmm. in order to prove her right to take up space in any room. Yeah. I mean, in the current world that we live in, yes. Like, it's just a fact that... I hate to be talking about this. Like, it's it's hard because I don't want to be talking on behalf of black people. Yeah, because... but I feel like as white people, we can definitely say that people of color's lives are harder than ours. Yeah. Like, that's... Yeah, I, but I totally agree. Like, we have talked about... We are white, and we have... Like you said, we can hide the fact that we're gay. We also... We're both not unattractive and so it's also been proven that people who are why thank you <laughs> well you're my wife so of course i think that but i mean the oh, fuck you could think that i'm ugly oh. uh, my point is that you could for... want um what, what you can want an anti-wife you know as molly <laughs> as molly claims to be in the film my point is that pretty people's lives are often easier as well and i'm sure molly bloom would agree with that the fact that she was attractive made it easier for her to manipulate men and to run the game for sure even if it you know sometimes made them dismiss her intelligence um you've asked me some really great questions let me ask you one for the sake of equality what a a segue there i feel like it's all right just the way that you said it you were like you've asked me some really great questions let me ask you one (laughs) let me ask you this okay yeah carry on my question is the movie was set after most of the book had taken place. What are your thoughts on this? And is it what you would have done in regards to shooting a film? Yes. Yes. I think the framing device was absolutely necessary, as we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, we needed that satisfaction of hearing about the court case and the struggle. I think that was part of the story. Yeah. Uh, it, and was, I, it was more satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. She should ex- she should release an extended version of her book. She should. I would love to know. And I would 20th anniversary copy. She should also release the videotapes of like being interviewed i would find that really interesting I'm, yeah i mean like well she could just yes, send to us like, uh, just us yeah molly if you're listening indulge us <laughs> just if you want no pressure um great okay so as a film how would you rate the movie i really liked it i don't know what i was expecting but i'm really enjoying <laughs> one book in and i'm enjoying the season so far um i would say an eight hmm I don't know why. I'm going to go six. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> just, I don't know. Just for the reasons that I've stated. Yes. And also because I do think that in the same way that with the book that they're trying to pack so much and so many elements in there with the, you know, the, the father-daughter stuff and the childhood stuff and the, mm. uh, you know, the skiing and then the female, like, misogyny and the way that she's navigating that world and mm. and then proving her name and her innocence. It's a, it's a lot. It's a lot. And I think it gets a little meandery at times. I think it does, too. Um, I guess I am I just didn't realize I was a fan of Aaron Sorkin and the way he um, shoots films because I just thought the film was made really well. Mm. I don't think I'll ever... And I, and I guess I'm just really into... Um, Jessica Chastain now, and I, oh, did, I, yeah. and I didn't realize. I was Let's like, go on a binge. Yeah. Jessica well, Chastain we're going binge. to. It's funny because we're actually, as part of this season, we're going to be covering uh, Zero Dark Thirty. In particular. Most probably. We haven't finalized the set list yet. But we have to now because I've seen it. Oh, and, yeah, we have and to. And I want to watch it. Yeah. It's written in stone now. That's right. I've seen it on the podcast. Well, actually, I could just edit this out, but I won't because I'm the one who does the editing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think that I But probably... I respect your six. I do. I respect your eight. I think I probably won't seek this film out again to watch it, but I think I wouldn't oppose watching it if it was on the table. That's how I feel. Yeah, I feel like if we feel like we were hanging out with someone who would appreciate it, I wouldn't mind watching it and showing it to them. But I, but yeah, you and I watching it again by ourselves probably won't happen. Mm. Yeah. I, won't, I probably, yeah, I probably won't be like, you know what would be really great tonight, babe? Is you and me a glass of wine, a bowl of popcorn, and Molly's game. <laughs> <laughs> it could be something else, because Molly's also a drug, and maybe, are we referring to poker, or... Oh, that was... Oh, there were some okay. good lines. There were some good lines. No, it's well written. My my favorite, I know, this is just a throwaway line, it's in a conversation I didn't really think needed to be in the film, mm. uh, between Molly and her dad at the ice rink, but when he says, um, did you misunderstand drive through in regard to talking about how Molly drove his car into a McDonald's, I thought, I was like, ooh. You love a good Some wit there. Yeah, but you love wordplay. I do. Shall uh, we do revamp, remake, retire? No. Oh. Or should we leave that out for this season? Because it's kind of harder to do with biographies. They're not all biographies. No, but this one is a biography. It is, yeah. I mean, I guess then we can both say retire. Yeah. 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 Sorry, I think that was a little underwhelming, a little anticlimactic, just to call back to some earlier criticisms of the book. But um, 
<laughs> that wasn't a very good callback. That was a terrible joke. I'm sorry. I apologize. Um, but yeah, I think I think that the story's been told, and I'm happy that it's been told, and it, don't need to revisit it. Yeah, exactly. I'm happy it exists. Another film doesn't need to be made about it. Yep. Great. Retire. Awesome. So let's uh, let's wrap up this episode. Uh, thank you for listening. I think that there are a lot of great questions that we talked today, a lot of great topics of discussion. We would love to hear your feedback or your input if you've been listening. Um, and please <laughs> check us out on Twitter. We are at CH1TK2. Check us out on Facebook, Chapter 1, Take 2. You can email us at chapter1take2 at outlook.com. Mm-hmm. And we've got our Instagram. We are um, Chapter 1, Take 2. Have I said that enough? Yeah, we're Chapter 1, Take 2. Is that the name of the podcast? Chapter 1? Chapter 1, Take 3? Chapter 4, Take 7? I don't know. Oh, you're so confusing. I am. <laughs> I think it's Chapter 1, Take 2, though. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so please like, rate, review anywhere you listen to podcasts. Yeah, smash that like button. Give us five, smash five, five stars on Facebook and five stars on Hulk iTunes. Smash. Yeah, um, we have been Chapter 1, Take 2, and we will continue to be as long as you are here with us. Chapter 1, Take 2, and not Chapter 4, Take 2. Oh my seven. god, stop saying the incorrect thing. It's not... <laughs> no one's going to get confused. It's fine. Okay, I'm Brianna. And I'm Maddie. Thank you so much, and we will see you soon. Bye! Bye! <laughs> oh, no.